Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we will do our best to answer you during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research best-selling author of Disrupted Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and other major publications. I tend to see him on CNBC and Fox News every day lately. <laughs> so definitely a thought leader in terms of technology, innovation, and, and, and business. And in my humble opinion, one of the top, top features to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, uh, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot, Vala. Here with my awesome co-host as well, Vala Ashar. He actually is one of the top CIO influencers, top CMO influencers, and more importantly, one of those active bloggers talking about anything from technology, society, and the impact to society of what's happening on where we're headed next. And so more importantly, uh, also an author himself. So you'll have to check out some of his books and, uh, of course, some of his famous videos that are out on the internet. And, of course, Canada's top business programming, one of the top pro guests that show up there on a regular basis. So who do we have today, though? We're talking about some cool stuff all across the board. Got some great CEOs, some founders, and, of course, analysts on this show. It's our privilege to have Julia Taylor Kennedy. Uh, Julia is the Executive Vice President and Director of Research at the Center for Talent Innovation a New York City-based think tank. At CTI, Julia drives cutting-edge research into issues impacting today's professional workforce with an eye toward solutions for a more inclusive and equitable global workplace and world. Uh, Julia directed the qualitative research for CTI's recently released study, I love this title, Wonder Woman in STEM and companies that champion them, uh, a groundbreaking and extensive look at the programs that help women STEM careers succeed, featuring tactical solutions for improving retention, engagement, and advancement. As a senior writer, uh, producer, and interviewer, Julia has moderated sessions and hosted podcasts at the United Nations, Carnegie Council for Ethics, and International Affairs, and the Conference Board, and many more. She's also collaborated with business uh, and gender experts on articles published in Forbes, in Times, and other academic journals and has advised speakers in major platforms like the World Economic Forum and United Nations. You can follow Julia's work on Twitter at J-U-L-I-A-T-A-Y-L-K-E-N-N. Welcome, Julia, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Thanks a lot for being here. You know, one of the reasons we wanted you on the show is because you're pioneering some new research and that research is really around digital learning. And for us, it's a new field. Uh, for you, it's probably old hat, but you're one of those pioneers. And can you describe the field and some of the key research you do and set the stage as we talk about what's happening with Wonder Women? Sure, absolutely. So my organization, the Center for Talent Innovation, as Vala mentioned, we're a research, nonprofit research think tank that's based here where I'm sitting in New York. And we mostly look at large employers to understand what are the issues around diversity and inclusion that they're facing and tangling with and having a tough time with so that we can help them understand those issues and then figure out what are the solutions to better 
include all employees regardless of background. And the technology space, the STEM space, has always been an important one for us in our research. Mm. We've been looking at it for about 10 years now because, as you both know, working in technology, uh, including women and making sure that women see their future in these fields is something that we've really been tackling as a society for quite some time and actually have made quite a bit of progress on. But in our latest research, we found that there's still more work to do and what we were really focusing on in this Wonder Women report is to move the conversation from problem to solution, right? Because we've been talking about the problem for a long time. We've made progress, especially at the educational levels, but companies are kind of experimenting still and don't necessarily have a guide for what to do first, what works the best. So we work to provide that. Wow. You know, in, in my company, a um, couple of years ago, our chief human resource officer um, scheduled a meeting with our founder. Mm -hmm. In the meeting, she uh, explained to him that we didn't have equal pay for equal work at Salesforce. And our CEO and founder's first reaction was, that's not possible. We're the best place to work in the world. We're on a bunch of lists, Indeed, and Forbes, that's not possible. And then, of course, the CHRO showed reports that uh, validated her thesis. And so we went on a couple of year journey, which will continue to go on. And so we had a major blind spot, even at the best place to work. Uh, right. so, so do you find that there are some short term uh, actions that companies can take, like, for example, looking at salaries uh, and, and making those corrections. And what are, what, what are some short-term things that we can do? Because often when we, when we talk about STEM uh, and, and gender equality, it feels like a 10-year, 20-year, 30-year journey. But we found in our company that you can actually pull a lever quickly and make some uh, improvements right away. Well, listen, Mark Benioff is an amazing thinker in this space, and I think Salesforce is a leader in terms of experimenting and finding something really important that can work uh, to, to uh, encourage women to stay at a company and see themselves having a future. Talking about equal pay for equal work, you know, we all go to work for lots of reasons, but a main reason is to have a living, to have a wage that, you know, can support the lifestyle we choose and we all want to be paid fairly. So I think it was really smart of Salesforce to look at that first. And in fact, in our data from our research, we looked at, we stepped back and said, okay, we have a survey that we're fielding with about 2000 women working in STEM fields. How can we look, use this amazing group that we have to understand what actually works for them to want to stay and advance in STEM. Because while about 50% of college grads um, in STEM are women, so it, we've reached parity in college grads, and about 40% at the graduate level are women, which is still pretty healthy, only about 30% of those in STEM are women. So wow, there's this drop-off drop from college to graduate school to the workforce. And we were thinking, okay, what's going on here? Um, and what we hear from women when we interview them and what we saw in their survey responses is they find themselves in these workplaces that they don't think are supporting their desires, their skills, their expertise. Um, so we 
you know, we had knew that problem already. What we were looking for was for those women who are staying and advancing at their companies, mm. who are sticking it out, what do their companies have in place um, that encourages them to stay and advance? So we made a very long list of things that companies are doing. And then we looked at the data to say, okay, which has the biggest boost on a woman's likelihood to stay and advance? Mm. And pay equity was number one. Yeah. So Salesforce, you know, we didn't know which one would come out on top, but Salesforce hit the nail on the head in terms of the most impactful way to engage and advance women. Um, and then we have a ranked list of the top 10 in our report. A couple of others that are particularly impactful are uh, having a connection to the female or minority consumer. Because that signals to women at the company that you not only value your female employees, you also value women who are using and consuming your products and want to make sure you're reaching them, as well as people of color who are using and consuming your products. So that was the second most impactful thing, which by the way is really smart for businesses too, to expand the market that they're reaching and be reaching out across the full, um, the full spectrum of consumers they could tap into. And then the third thing um, on this list of 10 is about having time for side projects. So when we got the, these results, we ran out and interviewed many women in the field to say, why are these different things impactful for you? And what we heard when we asked them about side projects was, well, my ideas sometimes aren't taken seriously on my team. Sometimes I'm dismissed in meetings in my core function. If I have a side project that I'm leading, that I'm working on, I get to develop my ideas and innovate in a way I may not be able to day to day. Mm -hmm. And then that gives me a different level of visibility when I can push an idea forward and then take that great idea in process to my leaders. So those were our top three. The rest are on our website if people are interested in learning more, uh, talentinnovation.org, they can see the others. The final interesting, awesome. oh, yeah, go sorry, go ahead. I, I was gonna say, I thought this was interesting because what you've done is, you know, you, you really codified some of the things that actually work in the workplace, but you're also talking about the fact that, you know, you understand that it's a multi-temporal problem, right? I mean, these are 10, 20 year problems that are in the pipeline and, it, and you can address both the short, medium and long-term uh, opportunities that are there. Uh, but, but what I do want, what, what you're about to say that there's one more and, and let's, let's talk about that, but I do also want to talk about, you know, the uh, whole Wonder Woman in STEM uh, headline, and, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But tell me what that last thing was that you're, you're about to get to. Well, the last thing I was going to mention, which was really interesting to us, is we didn't look just at gender. We also looked at race. And we found that some of these of solutions that companies use work better for white women than for women of color. And one example is um, affinity networks or employee resource groups. This was number nine on our list of 10 company interventions. Um, much more effective for white women than for black women who actually saw no bump in their likelihood to stay or advance at their companies who had an ERG. And the reason for that is for black women, they feel left out of the women's ERG. They feel like it's mostly geared toward white women and they feel left out of the black affinity groups because those they feel are mostly geared toward black men. So they're falling through the cracks in essence. So that's something else companies can focus on is including uh, looking as they build these groups, which is one of the most common things that uh, tech employers do, 
as they build an affinity group, think about including women of all backgrounds. Wow, that is a strong uh, statement there. And I think something uh, most people may not realize um, as they're building out the programs. Now, one of my favorite headlines was this one, Wonder Women in STEM and the companies that champion them. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, I guess along the way, you guys may have found some heroes uh, and folks that have done some uh, great work. Talk a little bit about that. And of course, where people can find that report as well. Sure, absolutely. So the second part of our report, we understand that, you know, as an individual woman, you might not be able to change your company strategy in the short, medium, or long term. And so you might want to think about, okay, so how do I succeed regardless of where I'm working? So we went back to that data set again and said, how do we define success and how do we look at our sample, those who are successful? So we separated out the women who are in senior positions, have gained the respect of their colleagues, and are fulfilled by, our, by their work. We're like, okay, if somebody's got those three things, they're pretty successful. And then we wanted to understand how they stood apart from their peers. Um, so we found they're more confident, they're more bold, by which we mean they're more likely to, to defend their ideas if they're attacked or ignored. They're more likely to invest in peer networks, they're more likely to sponsor or advocate for rising talent and understand that that helps them uh, stand out as leaders. They're more likely to be authentic and they're more likely to work on their personal brands. So though we go into the report, again, on talentinnovation.org, we go into each of those things and how women, what we mean by them, how women can really exhibit them so that they can stand out uh, in the workplace. Sure, sure. It's, so, so, so again, according to the report, uh, satisfied with their current job, respected by, uh, uh, by their expertise, and then having senior level positions define success. And if I recall, the report noted that 19% uh, of the respondents fit that category. In, in other words, they're successful at, at what they do. So when I, when, I, when I saw that, I had two things pop, uh, pop to mind. One was, did that number surprise you? Is 19% um, too low? And then if we had surveyed men in STEM positions, what would you say that percentage would be? Is one out of five successful? Uh, we shouldn't be acceptable for business. Ultimately, we want more than that. But is, is, that, is that something that, that surprised you in the, in the research? That is such a good question, Bala. And of course, we were curious about both things. I honestly, you know, it's funny perspective. I actually thought 19% was higher than I expected. Uh, you know, I, th I think it's a healthy number and that's encouraging that 19% of women succeed in STEM. We hear so, so much about the obstacles and so it's nice to hear that 19% of women are able to meet that bar. However, we do see about twice as many men um, who achieve success as women in STEM. Wow. So of course we did look at our wonder men as we called them <laughs> um, to figure out how that's different and it was about double. Do you think that's a function of the, 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 the gap that exists at senior level positions in terms of, especially in technology space and STEM where, you know, I remember looking at, uh, reading a, an article, was it last year or the year before that said, there are more men named Dave uh, than <laughs> women leaders of Fortune 500. That's right. I remember that study. So, yeah. I feel like in order to really resolve this issue, you need to have a concerted effort to have diversity at the very top layer of your of your company. Um, 
I'm not, uh, is, does that is that something that's aligned with uh, with with the research and the and the thinking in terms of what can we do again, not 10, 20, 30 years from now, right. but today, and that includes board members. Uh, you know, I often uh, have the pleasure of uh, you know participating or, or or analyzing board research, and it seems like completely not diverse. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So diversity at the top is huge in terms of driving diversity and inclusion at all levels of the organization. Because think about it, if you're entering a field and you see a female CEO or a female C chief information officer, that's an enormous role model for you. You see much more possibility for your own ability to achieve. That's um, a great point. Yeah, so, so that's really helpful. Uh, and in fact, we talk a lot in our research and have always talked in tech and outside of, of tech about how sponsorship or advocacy for women who are close to the top, who have received a senior level position but haven't necessarily broken through that glass ceiling or marzipan layer, whatever you want to call it. There are lots of terms that fly around now. Um, how they can break through to top leadership and others can help create that diversity in leadership. I think you're right because it's That's really great, important we had, strategic uh, decisions as well as inspiration. Absolutely. We had Whitney Johnson, who is the author of Disrupting Yourself and a, a venture capitalist who partnered with Clay Christensen with Rosa Park Ventures. And she said that throughout our career, although she appreciated and learned a lot and can credit some of her advancement to mentors, mm -hmm. sponsors, people that put their political capital on the line to promote individuals rising within an organization that had the biggest impact. So her advice, men or women, was find a good sponsor and earn the right to their attention and their advocacy. And I actually, upon reflection of my own career, sponsors are critically important. I, I totally agree with what you said. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely really important. We do the same thing. We've been uh, making sure that pay equity is in place and you know, we've been watching other companies do that. You know, mm -hmm. I hope we get to a point where we, we, we have people understand that there's equal opportunity, the system is transparent, and everybody has an equal shot, regardless of who you are. And uh, that's kind of a good goal to, to work towards. Um, what are some examples of companies and other examples of companies that, that, that you kind of work with uh, that are leading in this, really accelerating and retaining women in STEM, but also developing them and helping them with mentors and mentees? Great question. Um, we feature many in the report. One of my favorite examples is at Bloomberg. Uh, they've worked with their female engineers, a group of about 60 of them, and split them into what they call pods. So six or seven women who create a bit of a network for one another, right? They can go to one another for advice, but are also then paired with a senior manager who's outside of their reporting lines, who can be a mentor for them, give them feedback. They're given leadership development, how to become better leaders through this program. And then towards the end, they're given time with the director in charge of their department to share some ideas, to, to um, sit down and talk about themselves, introduce themselves, and, and share where they want to go in their careers and how it's going at Bloomberg. Um, so that's a fantastic example of a program with lots of different methods of support for women. And they're already starting to see better retention numbers as a result. Wow. We are here live with Julia Taylor-Kennedy, EVP at, and author at the Center for Talent Innovation with their landmark report. Uh, you can find that report uh, at talentinnovation.org. And more importantly, you can follow Julia on her web 
on her Twitter handle at Julia, T-A-Y-L-K-E-N-N. Julia, thank you so much for being on the show. Please come back. So. Thank you so much. I would love to. It was great to be here. Thank you, Julia. What an important topic for not just CEOs, but all business leaders. And I do think you have to purposefully measure and align your hiring and retention practice to ensure uh, there's diversity. And as we learn more about the impact of AI and algorith algorithmic economy and the biases that exist, I can't imagine you're not gonna have major bias in your algorithms if you only have you know, uh, men contributing to automation and, and, and such. So it's our pleasure to now transition to a, an incredible CEO who I'm sure has all of these topics we just talked about on top of his mind. Steve Murphy, Chief Executive Officer at Epicor. Steve uh, joined Epicor Software uh, as the CEO October of 2017, bringing over 20 years of technology industry executive management experience to the role. Epicor Software provides industry-specific software designed around the needs of manufacturing, distribution, retail, and service organizations. They're servicing 20,000 customers in 150 countries around the world that rely on Epicor to improve performance and profitability. So as CEO, uh, you know, Steve's responsible for providing long-term strategic vision for the company with a focus on customer experience and delivering innovative products, services, and support to, to drive business growth. Uh, before Epicor, Steve served as president of uh, OpenText, a $2 billion global leader in enterprise information management with 12,000 employees worldwide. And he was responsible for all customer-facing functions, sales, marketing, service. So if you saw a customer or partner, you were an organization that was led by Steve. You can follow all the work that Epicor is doing on Twitter at E-P-I-C-O-R. Welcome, Steve Murphy, to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much, Vala, and thanks, Ray. It's great to be here. Really look forward to taking a few minutes to talk about Epicor and some of the trends we're seeing in the industry. It's in a very exciting time. Awesome. It is. You know, I've been following you guys since, oh, my God, when you guys are like 150 million. You guys are almost a billion today. Uh, it's been massive growth over there. Let's talk a little bit about Epicor, right? I mean, the space that we're in in enterprise software is massively changing. Uh, what are customers looking for? What are they looking like today? Uh, and you guys have got your big conference coming up in a few months as well. So. Yeah, thanks for the question, Ray. And, and let me just share a few thoughts. Right now, it's a great time to be in manufacturing. It might have seemed like a business that was a little boring or maybe in the Americas we couldn't compete, but really the growth is substantial. We're seeing a lot of customers who are really going after that growth. And what they want from us is they want software that can connect them to other technologies, whether it's mobile or the internet of things, or it could be connecting to a supplier or a customer in a way they hadn't before that lets them go out there and take share and grow. That's the big thing. And to the extent that we're able to help them do that, they're going to buy our software and they'll continue to buy the software. Talk to us about opportunities to, and, and challenges perhaps to grow a cloud business. I mean, you're the CEO of a growing company. So, you know, obviously all the stakeholders are looking to you, Steve, to grow the business. What advice do you have? What lessons learned in terms of scaling and growing a, a, a cloud company? It's a great question. I think the, one of the most counterintuitive things for us about growing our, the cloud portion of our business, which will be about a hundred million dollar piece of our business out of the roughly 900 million by the end of the year is you've got to take some pressure out of the sales cycle for the salespeople. In other words, we're agnostic whether or not somebody wants to stay on prem or do the business in the cloud. And I think that really helps customers if they do decide to go with Epicor in the cloud, feel like they made the right choice. If you put too much pressure on a customer and say, hey, you've got to go SaaS 
it does occasionally backfire. So for us, making sure that we really are consistent about whether it's compensation for the salespeople or the quality of the solution, it really is your decision as a customer whether or not you want that solution in the cloud or not. In a lot of cases, because we're in the mid-market for manufacturing and distribution, you've got companies that are very comfortable with managing assets. And a server is an asset. So in that case, if they're very comfortable managing a data center and that's where they want to put the business, that's fine. And the funny thing is, if we allow them to be comfortable and take that pressure out of the sales cycle, they often do end up going with SaaS anyway, but at least they feel like it was their decision. Because it was. Do you have a sense, if you fast forward, and I know it's a ridiculous question because of the timeline, but let's go 10 years from now. Today, 10% of the business is cloud. Where do you see it 10 years from now? Do you think yeah. it's going to be significantly uh, in the cloud versus on-premise, or will we still try to maintain that balance for the customers, uh, you know, eat a peace of mind? Yeah, you know, I love this question, and I think back to uh, the late 1980s, early 1990s when I was in college, UC Davis, Aggies, but the... Um, the server, you know, the mainframe was where it all was. And then it got very distributed. And now it's coming back to what you could call a mainframe in the cloud, whatever you want to call it, a centralized computing. I think that there's going to be a shift towards a SaaS cloud arrangement. This is not going to go away. And maybe right now for us, if you look at the workloads, it's about 80% on premise, 20% in the, in the cloud. Boy, we're going to have to do a lot of push-ups per time we've said cloud at the end of the session. It's about an 80-20 split. I think 10 years from now, it'll probably be, it'll probably have come close to flip-flopping, but it, it won't ever go to 99.1 because there are a couple things. One is there's very sensitive data where people really do want to have the racks and the servers in the building. And then there are government agencies that want that level of control. And then in some cases, customers really are good at sweating the asset and they're like, hey, total cost of ownership, the calculation works in my favor. But I think it'll go from about 80-20 to 20-80 in 10 years. I think that's a reasonable shift. No, that's a great point. I mean, I can't believe the cloud's been around since like 2000. I mean, let's think about this, right? And it's taken this long for people to even adopt. So the 10% number that you have kind of matches what we're seeing, you know, with workloads in general. Like it's about somewhere between eight to 10% of the world's workloads are in the cloud as well. So this is the one like technology that, that took forever to actually start peaking out. But, uh, but yeah, the last next, the next eight to 10 years is going to show uh, definitely some of that shift. Now, as companies are doing that migration to the cloud, what are some things that they're discovering that they wouldn't have discovered before uh, along that journey? Yeah, you know, as they migrate, <laughs> there's some funny things that are being discovered. One is, in many cases, people have assumptions around asset utilization is a great one. Hey, I'm, I'm going to move to the cloud. I thought I was getting really great value out of doing it in-house. And in some cases, there were a lot of optimistic assumptions about how well they did run it in-house. And I think that that's as far as uh, the useful life of an asset and really getting that value, that's a big one. I think the other one is... How well their security is? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's a great point. People think their security is great. And I'd say that whether it's Azure or some other cloud, the security is really, it's quite good. I was a skeptic and I was an engineer before I was anything else. I'll say the, that it's actually quite good. The other thing is the for software, the cost of upgrading and keeping the software current can be very high. And in many cases for customers, there's a lot of people that have to spend a lot of time making sure that it's upgraded. Or in many cases, they don't upgrade it. And it gets really old and it's not compatible backward or forward at some point. So one of the things they discover is, hey, if we do move it into the cloud, you might not be able to get every last piece of functionality you want, but it's always current. The way I, I like to say this one, you might not be able to get um, sprinkles on your cupcake with pink frosting, but you can't get the pink frosting. And you might have been the one that gave me that example. I don't know, right? But that's the way that you get almost everything you want, but you might not get the sprinkles on the cupcake. Yeah, that makes sense. 
I, uh, I, I recall looking at a, an IDC predict, prediction recently of uh, data consumption around the world. And I think the projection is, again, in the next 10 years, we're going to go from about 12 zettabytes of data to 168 zettabytes of data. And only Ray knows how many zeros are in a zettabyte, but it's a big number. <laughs> and uh, the famous IBM prediction or statement that 90% of all data ever produced was produced in the last 12 months. So obviously, an explosive consumption of data. What other key market changes are impacting customers today and impacting your business model? Yeah. Social, cloud, all these things we're talking about. And of course, we haven't done any push-ups talking about AI. Not yet. <laughs> still time. We still have 10 minutes. So there are a couple of really big changes that uh, I think there's a lot of value that's being created, but you got to be a little cautious too. The first one is mobile. So for instance, the way the you know, millennials or even us, us older guys, the way we work uses mobile more and more so that's for sure. So if you're in a warehouse, for instance, or a lumber yard and you're checking stock, you've got to be able to take that iPhone and snap a picture of a, a could be a barcode or something like that. Right. And that's got to go directly back to the ERP system with no room for human error. So mobile's got to be something that's got to be a part of the solution. It's got to be easy. It's got to be something where there's no training or anything else required to be able to use that. I think the other thing is the, um, the degree to which the user interface needs to look like LinkedIn or Facebook or a game. That's a real thing. And I, I must admit, two or three years ago, I kind of poo-pooed that idea saying, well, users should be able to have some level of training to use it. Well, the reality is if you can make it smart enough and reduce the clicks enough and gamify it enough, it's easier to learn. It's easier to use. You kind of meet the users where they're at as far as their skill level and what they're expected to. They like the software more and they use it if it looks and feels that way. So I think those are two big trends. I think the last one would be, there are a lot of different technologies that can be brought together to solve a really tough problem. We've got a customer in the Netherlands who they have, um, they make precision machine components and they've got a lot of raw materials stacked up in warehouses, 20, 30 feet high. So if you want to count inventory, it's really hard to get on a ladder and get up there and do it. This is a case where we've taken, <laughs> taken drones plus Epicor and RFID codes and being able to do cycle counting without a human being have to take the risk of climb up the racks and do that. And that gets directly connected back to the ERP system. So it solves a tough problem. It's good for safety. And it brings a variety of technologies together where it actually creates some value. Yeah, this is uh, we had the president of IDC on our show a couple of weeks ago, Crawford Del Pret, and he talked about the era of multiplied innovation. So with deep learning and image recognition, natural language processing and voice and drone, the combination of all of those creates a frictionless, seamless experience. And I think that those are trends that we're going to see really transforming not only enterprise applications, but how businesses conduct themselves, do business. I think that's right. That was one of my favorite things at the show last year, that drone right there sitting right above. So anyways, but yeah, we definitely saw that. But hey, let's talk about some of the other business issues. You talked about manufacturing coming back to the US, coming back to North America, more localized pieces. We're seeing additive manufacturing play a big role, digital supply chains. Um, this has definitely gotten the business thinking a little bit differently. And as you're selling into these businesses that are thinking about new business models, including service, uh, you know, installation and all these other areas. Uh, what's changed in the mindset? Is, is technology more important? Is it less important? Do they feel that they have to make these investments finally now after all these years of waiting? Uh, are you seeing that spigot kind of start to open up in terms of investment? Yeah, great question, Ray. For sure, the spigot's opening up. So one of the big changes is if you start with the assumption that we're going to bring jobs back to the Americas, to North America, and you 
assume the wage rate has to be a high enough wage rate that it's a good job. You really have to use technology to build productivity into the plant or the warehouse. You can't do it any other way. So if you look at a new factory that makes cars or auto assemblies or just about anything, there's got to be enough productivity with the embedded technology that it makes sense, that it pencils out. So that's one of the big things we're seeing as far as the quality of the degree to which it's connected, the quality of the degree to which it can meet a service level. Those kinds of things have become really important. I think the other thing is a lot, maybe you call it the Amazon effect. You've got a lot of companies where they have a competitive advantage and it might be they've got stock. They've got the right products in the right place in the warehouse. And they're kind of trying to figure out, well, how can technology allow us, for instance, to compete with Amazon? Could we have a service level where we deliver in two or three hours versus 12 hours or next day? Technology required, because if you get to where you've got, an example would be a connected warehouse. You can sense demand out there in the marketplace within that zip code. You can know in real time how many widgets or gloves or safety glasses you've got within the warehouse. And you can actually have a truck that does a milk run every hour. You can start to do things Amazon can't do because they've got one distribution center out in Lathrop, California, but they don't have one in San Mateo or Cupertino. So you've got an opportunity to take advantage of that, but it takes a lot of technology. That's amazing. Steve, as as a strong CEO who's spending a lot of time with customers, are you okay with sharing some inspiring stories where, you know, your customers are thinking about new business model innovation or they're, leveraging technology to do things in a new way. What are some stories uh, since you've been CEO uh, that really opened your eyes in terms of the, the art of the possible and how Epicor can help companies really turbocharge their growth? Hey, thanks for asking. It's one of my favorite parts of the job. So one of the things I get to do is go out and meet customers and see the factories and see what they built. So a short one I'll share is, um, if you are a Harry Potter fan, you see the London taxi cabs. Well, nowadays those London taxi cabs are plug-in hybrid, which is really cool. So a plug-in hybrid has both the battery pack it can run on plus an internal combustion engine to recharge the battery. The plant that makes those in Coventry, UK runs on Epicor. And one of the things that is just really amazing about it is the um, each vehicle requires an operating system because it's as complicated electrically as it is mechanically. The actual ERP system is good at comparing or very precise at comparing the vehicle with the operating system because they vary depending on the features. That's one where 10 or 15 years ago, if somebody would have described that problem to me, I would have said, I don't even think you can make a car that way. It's too complicated. But using an ERP system that's got that sophisticated of a lookup table, they're able to do it. And when one of those rolls off the line, the operating system runs the car perfectly for whatever that car is configured to do. And a lot of it is the systems that connect the software to the mechanical complexity of the vehicle. So that's it. It's, it's cool. That's one that really has inspired me. I guess the other thing I'd say about that is it's a highly automated plant and they don't weld the components together anymore. They glue them together. And that's one where the bill of material requires that because there are machines connecting these parts, it's got to be done perfectly. Again, the ERP system double checks that that component is exactly as it should be because if the robots get the wrong component, it brings the entire assembly line down. It's fascinating what's being done these days. Yeah, that TX5 plant is pretty amazing. So That's amazing. So low latency automated procedures were, again, wrong component, wrong time, wrong place, and you could literally shut down the entire plant floor. Exactly. Exactly. That's amazing. That's amazing. Wow. So you're walking into the next year. User conference is coming up uh, soon. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and what you're hoping to see uh, as this year progresses. Yeah, so I've been on the – thanks for asking, Ray, and I look forward to seeing you there. Hope to see you. So I, I have been on the job about a year and a half. And I think the thing that's most important to me is 
that we keep our commitments to our customers. We, um, we really do, one of the things that I think we really try to do is tap into the collective expertise of our customers when it comes to requirements. We may be experts at making software, but as far as what they need, we have a feedback loop in place. And each year we have user conferences. And in addition to that, we have advisory boards. And this year I'll be looking forward to getting the very honest feedback. How do we do? You know, you told us last year what you wanted to see in the product and we've got the GA releases out for the year, including six mini releases. Did we get most of it into the product? Did we get the requirement right? And where did we fall short? I think that that's a big one too. We're not perfect. So as far as having that feedback loop where we're honest with them and ourselves, if we do that every year, I think it continues to make the product really good and continually improve. So that's the biggest thing I'm looking for is that I learn a little bit and we're really transparent with our customers at the conference. I, I think that's, that's, a, that's amazing. Uh, you know, it, it, our company's growth, uh, I believe, is due to the fact that our guiding principles in prioritized order start with trust. Uh, and that means radical transparency and seeking feedback pro proactively and then customer success. So measuring your success based on your, your customer success and innovation and equality, which we talked about at the beginning of the show. So you're kind enough to be a mentor CEO and I come to you as a mentee CEO of a startup company or a company that's a billion or less in, in revenue. What advice can you give me as a, as a, as a new CEO based on the, your last year and a half, two years in terms of things I should be doing or lessons learned and, and certainly blind spots that I may have as an up and coming CEO? Yeah. Hey, great question. I think the biggest lesson for me, well, it's, it underscores something I've come to believe to be very true over my lifetime is no matter how senior you are, big or small the company is, product knowledge is really important, especially in software. If you are bringing a new product to market or it's software and there's continually a new release, you really need to put in the time studying and sometimes late at night, you know, early in the morning on the weekends, I'll pick something up and read about a new architecture, um, a new way of developing code, blockchain, whatever it is, just to make sure I know what I'm talking about. And if a technical issue comes up, I can help or more importantly, not be a hindrance. So I think for anybody who's gonna lead a company, really make sure your knowledge of the product is excellent, is outstanding. Because when you go in front of customers, they expect that, no matter who you are. You can't be the CEO and say, hey, you know, it was my understanding there'd be no math in the debate, as I think that was Chevy Chase that said that, but you've gotta be able to get into the, get into the details and into the weeds and really help with the product. That would be the biggest one for me. And then I think the other one is, when you get to where you're in charge of the company, by the time a problem gets to you, it's because no one else can figure it out and you're just gonna to have to deal with it. Don't sit on these tough decisions. Make them, try to make them the same day because it's likely that there's no more information you're gonna to get tomorrow. And if you can do that and you make a mistake, correct quickly, your company will probably do fine. Wow, we're here with one of the, uh, we're here with one of the top enterprise CEOs, uh, Steve Murphy at Epicor from PNG staff engineer to HBS grad to CEO. What an awesome career. So uh, we're here talking to him. And of course, check out their conference April 14th through 18th, I believe, at the Mandalay Bay. Is that correct? Epicor Insights. Yep. That's right. Yep. And uh, yeah, and uh, it will be my 16th Epicor event. Uh, so yeah. been following you guys for a while. So have an awesome weekend. Thanks for being on the show and uh, definitely catch up with you and see what's next. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Walla. Very nice. You crushed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's so great to have smart CEOs who spend their Friday afternoons with you and I. I'm always amazed how fortunate we are to get really smart people to come on the show with us uh, again on a Friday afternoon and, and just teach us. Uh, this is where you and I 
get to uh, stay teachable. And, wow, and we also get smart people on my team. I love that one. <laughs> That's right. Speaking of uh, really smart people, uh, this is our cleanup hitter spot where we bring in a guest who comes in and hits a grand slam and helps us successfully close the show. So no pressure. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have Holger Mueller, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, coming back to disrupt uh, TV. Well, Holger uh, provides strategy and counsel to key clients, including chief information. Uh, come on, Konvada, we, we don't do this full thing. Come on, let's chief go. To product <laughs> officers. He has served as vice president of products, chief application architect. Your time is expensive. Let's not burn it. You can look it up. SAP and Oracle. <laughs> hey, at least do me a favor and follow Holger on Twitter at H O L G E R M U where not only you can get wisdom in, part, in terms of future of work and human capital management, but you can also learn how to correctly pronounce words <laughs> and city names. So, <laughs> last week. Just the lead-in for you guys, right? So hi, Ray. Hi, Vala. Good to be on the show, right? Did you recognize the town in my background? No. What are we looking at back there? I was thinking about how to help you with this, right? Uh, the French people like to say about your hometown, Boston, right? But it's not Boston. <laughs> Boston. Right? The emphasis on the first syllable, right? Now, give, you want, who wants to go first to pronounce this nice place where the World Economic Forum is first? Ray or Vala? Ray, please. Davos. <laughs> so. Oh, we're getting there. Vala, can you do better? Think, Davos. think Boston. Think Boston. Davos? Davos, yeah. It's Davos. Davos. <laughs> I think the video was the video was quite a hit at uh, at the World yeah. Economic Forum. People were looking at this thing and saying, hey, well, this actually right. understands what he's talking doing, about here. You and I were doing live shows, and I kept on saying, Ray from Davos is here. <laughs> So, so about, about the 10th time, I think Holger was kind enough to say, listen, guys, let's yeah. keep you on the right road. So thank I you for that. That's too much, right? So. <laughs> I forgot I had the background from my favorite location where, where we oh, do our yeah, conference. Nice. But let's talk research. Holger, you, you know, you're kicked off the year with some, some big concepts. I know there's some uh, documents that I, I've got to edit. I'm sitting in there. But we're, we're in the midst of a shift to next generation applications, right? And, right. and a lot of this is because the cloud has been, become much more mature. But you're talking about this really important concept. You're going around the world speaking about this, which is infinite computing, this right. era of infinite computing. And what is that all about? And explain that so that you know, uh, the average mere mortal can understand what in the world that is and really what it means going forward. So before we get to infinite computing, we have to correct some fake news on this very much disrupt TV show. Right? The, the cloud, cloud is not our pronunciation is now. The cloud is not around since 2000, right? That's where it all started with international, with internet connectivity getting everywhere, right? Amazon AWS started 2006. Yep. Do you think it's older, Google or Azure? Google 1998. Google 1998, that's the founding of the company. We're talking about the cloud platform. When did the cloud start at Google? Oh, you're talking right? about so, so who's platform. older? Is Azure older or is Google cloud platform older? What do you think from a launch date? Oh, I don't know. That's uh, so, so, so if you take the start of App Engine at Google's 2008, right? So they're barely past the 10th anniversary. And, and Azure was launched February, t early February, February 1st, 2010. 
Azure isn't even 10 years old, right? So if you say adoption of the cloud took a long time, well, all these were not mature offerings from these guys right from the beginning, right? So really for the cloud to be a mature platform, we're talking about four or five years so far, right? But did, I'm talking about SaaS apps as well. SaaS apps started in 2000. Well, well, SaaS is kind of like confusing because how do you provide the service, right? It's just yeah, your central yes. server somewhere. It's a distribution. It's a distribution channel. And then there was this whole confusion about, oh, internet-based architecture is SaaS, right? It could be, but doesn't have to be, and could be cloud, doesn't have to be. So it was great zone happening there but anyway infinite computing right so infinite connectivity right who cares about how much data they consume who says oh we can't watch another netflix movie because we don't have enough metered connection right? so infinite connectivity and lots of people made this big mistake in saying with infinite connectivity now we have all these new use cases remember the marketplaces that's 20 oh, years yeah. ago but people oh, forgot yeah. connectivity is not enough i have to build applications which can scale to that and that that didn't happen but the first thing which happened this year little history lesson too remember this guy <laughs> He's been on the show before. It's been a while. I was being props, right? Who is this? It's the uh, Hadoop elephant. It's the Hadoop elephant. Very good, right? This duck cutting son's toy, right? Which was yep. called Hadoop. And this is one of the first hundred replicas made by Cloudera. I'm very honest to, honored to have one, right? So that created for the first time the capability for enterprise to store all the electronic information which was around. Before that was a government NSA type activity because commercially it wasn't viable and that was a big thing you could not only store it, you were able to analyze and ask questions which you didn't know at the time of storing. That was never been around before. That was a second breakthrough. The third one was we talked about the cloud with cheap compute. I have an IS provider, I want to have utilization. So if I have servers idling, I want to give it to other people so I reduce the price, they can use it for stuff. And the fourth one is artificial intelligence, especially in the form of a neural network. Why? Because we saw everything before is unlimited. So all the algorithms I have which are limited for a set of problems do not work in the area of infant computing. There have to be neural networks which can be multiple level deep sleep. So those are the four things, the four cornerstone of infinite computing. And these wow. four cornerstones tie to another topic that you've, you, you, you've, uh, you've championed, which is uh, enterprise acceleration. But you explain what that is and, and why is it happening now? Well, that's not so technology driven. That is more about companies have to move faster than ever before, right? There's a number of things, right? The markets are moving faster. Product innovation goes faster. All this technology allows things to go faster. There's less hands, right? We have a, we have a dying world population, the first world countries where we move from six people working on one person retired to two people working to one person retired, right? It was great to listen to Julia and all the women advancement. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I have four daughters, so it's all good with me. But the biggest thing which will help women from a historic perspective Highest, highest workforce for women was during World War II when the men were gone, right? Uh, East Germany had the problem not having enough laborers, so they provided um, childcare for kids from three months on because they want the women to go to work, right? So this running out of hands will mean higher labor participation of people who have not been participating, mm. people with handicaps, women, all other kind of minorities who just be needed because you're literally running out of hands. So companies have to move faster. I published last year, what do people leaders have to do from that perspective, number of strategies, and the report you're sitting on is the one, what IT and CTO leaders need to do, right? So that, that's also- oh, that's, that, that's being edited as we speak. <laughs> so, perfect, perfect. We'll can get it out today. Con, can you give us some context when you say faster? Yeah. So if we, like for example, um, product to market, what was the average time if you were, uh, let's say mid to large enterprise in the 90s, 2000 and today, and what you project it will be 10 years from now. What does faster mean? Uh, and, I'm, and I'm a CEO of a company and I want to move faster and I want you to advise me. What should be my targets in terms of ideations or product to market and 
and, and any other metrics that measure speed? Great, great question. It has to be faster, right? There, there's the automotive industry, right? I know a number from Mercedes-Benz in Germany, right? In the 70s, it was about 10, 12 years until a new model would come out. And as a customer, you had to order it and wait for it. Order it and wait for it, right? That was a new platform. And now they're in the three, four years time frame for a completely new design car platform, right? So it's dramatically different tools. All the tools, all the technology advanced mentioned before. But think about software is eating the world. Great quote from Mark Andreessen. All companies are becoming software companies. In the software world, everything's moving faster, right? Remember, we, we heard before from the CEO of Epicor, people would stay on premise for five, six, 10 years or even longer and not touch that thing because it was running. And now all SaaS providers in the cloud provide you like updates every two, two times a year, three times a year, four times a year, right? So everything is moving faster. And this also means the product lifecycle for software and for enterprise of to consume it has to be dramatically faster. So I measure the speed of an enterprise. Yeah, you can't run at full speed all the time and ruins the enterprise, ruins the engine, but you must have a high speed when you're in a situation where you want to move fast because you want to disrupt the market or when you're being disrupted and it's all hands on deck and you have to try to catch up to the new way of working to the new best practices for your industry, for your enterprise. So can I just have a follow-up question? And, and so I'm, I'm amazed that when you drive a Tesla, you could do a software upgrade and add 100 horsepower to your car or add self-driving capabilities. So the foresight that goes into designing the discrete components in the hardware so that Five years down the road, you could do a software upgrade to get capabilities that are in the past unheard of unless you bought a new model. Right. So when you talk about speed and also uh, sustainability and, and relevance, how do companies deliver things really fast, but do it in a way that whatever they're delivering is actually upgradable or usable mm -hmm. based on a software architecture? It has to be upgradable and usable, right? And it's very, very hard, right? Especially when we talk about products where people can die, right? When your enterprise software fails, hopefully nothing happens, right? In the fine print you can see, you're not allowed to use mass transport with the software or, or run power plants with the software, right? Because we all know there could be issues, right? quality issues. So it's very, very different when it happens in the real world. But finding these platforms, stabilizing these platforms and getting longevity, right? The, the former uh, CEO of Infosys had this concept when he was CTO at SAP with Schalzika of timeless architectures, right? Which can last and get these upgrades. And especially in the industrial internet, IoT, you need to have much more longer lasting parts. This is why we see things like CPM and DOS still running vital parts of the infrastructure of all the vulnerabilities of that around. But a very, very excellent point, right? In enterprise software, we're spoiled that we can change platforms in two, three years. With a lot of work, of course, but it's not the same thing if you have to update your Tesla. And, but I think the point will come logically when somebody will sit on the car on the road, has to put in an update and it doesn't work and you can't upgrade, you need to get towed, right? So uh, that inevitably will happen and will show how that part of the software industry is growing up to the reality there. Platforms matter and platforms and have end of life cycles. That's what happened when my battery died. <laughs> Do whatever you want, the battery's dead. So. Yeah, I have this issue this morning. I, uh, I want to use my new laptop for this. I get the Windows update and for whatever reason, the camera doesn't work and I've been able, despite investing two hours to get the camera going, so I'm on the backup laptop. So backup is very important, even in 2019. All right, so where do next gen apps go, right? Are we beholden to the lock-in of the public cloud or are there gonna be other choices? Because right now people are getting scared that you know these big you know cloud companies might lock them up so yeah but but i mean i think there's good news on that front right talking about the lock-in which is always a fear and 
often CTOs, CIOs go into the lock-in because they have to build things so fast because they can say, wait a minute, I have to do multi-cloud and so on. The platforms which provide that multi-cloud, like Cloud Foundry as an example, are very, very successful. But the good news is now that everybody has endorsed Kubernetes as container platform and packaging platform, and that yeah. gives you portability. And that also gives you portability beyond multi-cloud to even on-premise. Because the big news from a platform perspective for 2018 is that the, the cloud stacks are moving back on-premise. Yeah, so we see Microsoft Azure stack um, getting more mature. We saw Google announcing GKE on-premise. Uh, we saw Amazon announcing um, outposts in, in November last year. Amazon going on-premises, right? So, so this new next-generation computing plane, as I call it, with all these five players in there, including Oracle and IBM. Oracle's been doing this for a very long time, saying same servers on the both sides. That, that is going to be really interesting for CIOs, CTOs, enterprise to move loads seamlessly between different computing platforms. And that's really the big, big difference from last year. It was always has to go to cloud, and now there's more options across the clouds, thanks to Kubernetes, and to run on-premise. That's, that's great insight. Um, yeah, no, that's let's, huge. let's switch gear to, to um, another area which you're amongst the world-renowned experts, and that being future of work and, and, and human resources. What's happening in that space that excites you as an analyst, as a, as a, as a futurist? What, what advice or what should CHROs have on their radar uh, as they look forward to transforming their businesses in terms of uh, human capital management? Right. Great question, right? There's two components of enterprise speed. One is your platform software. The other one is your people, right? You can have the greatest software platforms. Your people don't know how to use it. Then it doesn't work and vice versa, right? You have great talent people, bad software, they leave, right? But, but the, really the most exciting thing right now is that AI is maturing to this level with the combination of big data that you can really help the people who move an enterprise from a speed perspective again, that's middle management, right? That's the manager, director who manages 10, 15, 20, 30 people. If you help those leaders to move their teams better in a more equitable way, what we heard from Julia, in, in a more fair way and in, in being successful to hiring, and this is very hard, right? I mean, we've all been at the stop, right? I mean, I'll, I'll confess the first, I've been sitting over salary increase spreadsheets uh, uh, when it was dark outside and I should have been sleeping and thinking about what is the right thing here, right thing there. And you do decisions under uncertainty and risk, right? I mean, you don't have to out yourself. I'll out myself of that. I've done this before. So there's <laughs> probably record of me doing this. Nobody has come to complain to me about this. And that's why I'm so excited about AI to say, look, you can really figure out from the amount of data and give these often newly promoted middle managers, new managers who are in this position help how to guide their team, how to motivate their leaders, what the right salary increase, how to coach them, which uh, education to send them to, out of the information that's no longer them being alone, right? We talk all about the mentorship, right? Mentorship is very important, but this is like, because I have gray hair, right? This is, mentors were important for us. Now it's really your AI digital assistant, which might be even coming, thinking beyond 2019, beyond, what is your current employment, right? This will be your buddy telling you, hey, you've been in this job too long. You have to look for something else. But there's other opportunities here. Here's a skill for you to come. You shouldn't atrophy your skills on a certain level, right? So that's where, where the combination of big data, seeing all these events and neural networks learning that I will not give people a raise who have done a certain thing because that's my personal style and I told my team and knowing that, right? So and learning that I won't do this next year again, in half a year again, but I will honor other things, right? We'll learn and have an individual neural network powered advisor for me as a middle manager to do better decisions. So that's the most exciting thing for me. And, and Holger, how much of the data set is from outside their company 
uh, in other words, as the algorithms are making these decisions about retention, bonuses, uh, uh, training, ads, how, how, much, how, how much of the data set are leading companies using that are not within the walls and boundaries of their corporations to ensure that they have it, enough contextual intelligence to make the proper predictions and recommendations? Great question, Vala, right? I mean, DAS, data as a service, DAS is a growing next generation application. You have to get data in there. You can't live in your own bubble, especially when you're a small company, but also when you're a large company saying, you have to build software, you're gonna hire software developers. You don't know the prevailing wages of software developers for a certain location because you just don't have enough. And when you have enough, say you're a software company, um, you might be living in your bubble and you might be underpaying, overpaying, undercompensating, just talking about salary, it's very well structured. But what is happiness of people? What is a typical additional benefit for them, right? How much do you pay for a gym membership? These are all decisions which are very important for morale and employee engagement retention, which again, some HR person, some leader will have to approve basically out of gut feel, yeah? Or calling the CEO down the street. And that's not a scientific way of running companies or, or the right way in the 21st century to run companies. We've done this for hundreds of years like this because we had no other technology for it. And, and is Constellation Research an example of a potential data as a service provider? Who, who, who's a data as a service provider? Like what's? Everybody is. Everybody, Everybody is, right? Like, like, like my, my example is always a company with a thousand employees who clock in, clock out, has a million uh, driving events from their home to their workplace or transportation events. That's data as a service for a location. Yeah, that's valuable something. I don't know how much it's valuable. I don't know if you barter your data against getting some other data, but the digital exhaust of a company which is not sensitive, neutralized, is, is massive, right? So, Constellation, so I, I, I don't think we... You don't need a trusted middle person. You believe that uh, you can just... The think, think, normalize the data and get you where you need to. I, I think and hope that blockchain kills the middle person for good. <laughs> <laughs> because middle, middle persons have been slowing things down. Right? I mean, there was no other way around. I was recently in Mexico City, right? Fascinating, right? The first global city in 1540, administrators in Mexico City, not just run from Oregon to Louisiana all the way to Panama. No, they also run the Spanish Caribbean possessions. They also run the Philippines, which are also mm -hmm. a Spanish part, right? In 1540, with like management tools, documents, uh, time to convert things, right? That, that was possible, fascinating, right? But, but today, we should not be doing this anymore. Wow. Hey, um, one last quick question. Uh, you've got some short lists coming out. Uh, these short lists are kind of uh, your stake. Uh, tell us a little bit about the quantum computing shortlist. This has been a pretty interesting one. Uh, I'll give you about like 30 seconds on this one before you. Quantum computing is super, super, super exciting because it changes everything that we've known, right? And the usual suspects are on there, IBM, Google, Rigetti Computing, I hopeful. Don't for, didn't forget Microsoft. I think I haven't forgot anybody on that. But that's going to really disrupt the way how we can do things and build things. But it's just around the corner. The tools are being built for it, but it's not yet mature enough. That we might reach quantum parity this year, right? So it's going to be a big inflection point. Wow. Okay. We're here talking live to Holger Mueller, one of our top analysts, and uh, more importantly, one of the top thought ball leaders on cloud, on HR, on HR tech. And uh... <laughs> Barbara, is he stepping back? I mean. <laughs> Let me tell you, last night I was at the Celtics Lakers game with my son who's eight and Sony Michelle, the only guy who scored a touchdown at that Super Bowl, walks right by us. My son puts the basketball out and he signs it. 
Oh, very nice. So, so very nice. we got to see Sony yesterday. That was pretty awesome. You can call her at Holger Mew on <laughs> Holger. One, one more stop, right? So oh, here, here we go. One more. Right, right. right. Oh, he's got the shirt. One more stop, right? <laughs> What's our Milan, right? Uh, look, football is coming to soccer, as you can see there, right? That's really a legal tackle in soccer. Okay. We could only see Holger's shoes. With that, with that, I'm done with all my traditional topics. Sadoop Elephant says bye bye. <laughs> all right and a farewell to holger mueller uh, happy friday here and thanks for being on the show we'll see you back on of course you can catch holger at a bunch of conferences keynotes and of course uh on disrupt tv so all right cool thanks a lot for being on the show always a pleasure to have you on the show it's uh he's he's one of the smartest people that we both know so it's uh it's always nice to have him come on and give our audience uh, a view into, into the future. And, and next week, we'll try to do the same. We have Dr. Daniel Kraft, uh, physician scientist, chair for medicine at Singularity University, founder, chair of exponential medicine. So Dr. Kraft will blow our minds next Friday. We have Mac Maggie Cradock, author, executive coach, owner, workplace relationships. And lastly, we have one of our favorites, uh, Byron Reese, right. publisher of GigaOM, author and futurist and his books and his vision and the way he tells stories are, are, uh, are, are really taking complex topics and breaking them down in not only historical relevance but sequential relevance and he's, he's an exceptional storyteller and a futurist so we're gonna have an amazing show next Friday please tune in Ray closing remarks uh, for our episode 136 of Disrupt TV you know, there's a lot going on. I've been to a ton of sales kickoffs uh, this week and last week, and most of this month has been, uh, we're seeing a lot of energy, and, and you can definitely see a lot of energy in a lot of companies that, that are really looking at suddenly taking technology, putting it to use, changing business models. It can't be a more exciting time, and, and I think uh, the next the next year is going to be super interesting, uh, given like all the new types of businesses that are being formed. So I think, you know, you'll see these all on Disrupt TV show. Uh, definitely recommend CEOs, investors, uh, media folks, authors, and of course, startup companies uh, that we should be talking to. And uh, thanks again to our awesome producer, Aubrey. So uh, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thanks for being on the show. Mm -hmm.